This week's episode of Best Concordia was made possible by the Concordia School of Graduate Studies, the Office of the Dean of Arts and Science, and the Concordia Ethnography Lab. You're the best, Concordia. This is Amalitsuka. In this episode, we are talking ontology. Once again, we will be using some clips provided by the Thinking in Spacetime group that meets every two weeks here at the Concordia Ethnography Lab. But this week, I'm trying something a little bit different. To make it easier on all of us, I will try to illustrate ontology using a quite insightful experiment conducted by a fellow Ethnolab member, Ida Maritaft. Ida's experiment isn't about ontology, it's about interactive design and gaming. But you'll find out a little bit later how her work strangely relates to ontology. So what is ontology? I'm tempted to say I really have no clue, but that wouldn't make me a good host, would it? So let's first resort to our good friend Google. Okay, so ontology studies concepts that relate to being, existence, or reality. Ontology is concerned with answers to questions such as, what is existence? Okay, so sit back and relax, because this week we're bringing you a story about humans interacting with objects. We're trying to show you that ontology can be found in unexpected places, but also that ontology can be found everywhere. We're going to explore together our series of experiments on interaction design and on the sense of touch, otherwise known as the haptic sense, can help us better understand what ontology really is. But first, let's hear from Marie Drouin-Gagné. She's one of the leaders of the Thinking in Spacetime group. You might hear her refer to an author or a text. It's because prior to their discussion session, the group members choose text to discuss that relates to a particular subject, in this case, ontology. If you're curious about the text, we have included full references in the podcast description. But don't worry, you don't need to read the text if you don't want to. We did all the job for you and edited the episode so you wouldn't have to read them. You are very welcome. And between you and me, the author's names were also really hard to pronounce, and I have a lot of shit to do, so... So I leave you in good hands to hear all about a Marxist ontology. How do we define ontology anyway? So it refers to the general considerations about existence reality and the being. So this is like general ontology, but in terms of the society, which is because he's working on uh, Marx's theory of society, then he goes to the ontology of society. And so this is referring to determinations that distinguishes society as a form of being, expressing its different to the previous forms of existence, what constitutes society, basically. Mariev makes an important point here. The Marxist perspective does not address ontology per se, but rather social ontology. From the Marxist perspective, ontology is about society as a form of being. So what are the main questions that can be addressed through social ontology? The two 
questions he's trying to address is like what distinguishes society from other forms of existence and uh, what are the general universal properties that make it possible to characterize a social being in any concrete historical condition. So what makes social existence different from other forms of existence? What are those special properties that make social beings social? Some might say teleology. Okay, so another big concept, but isn't it already hard enough? Stay with me now, listener. This will all get clearer in a moment. Individuals, humans in the society, have uh, teleology in the sense that they have uh, intentions in what they do. So that's what he calls teleology. It's not necessarily the teleology in the sense of like, um, you know, the end is included in everything. In, In a Marxism, like teleology doesn't apply to the whole of society or even like to the whole of history, but it applies to the idea that as beings, human um, uh, in their activities have that teleology, so they have intention. To sum it up, teleology is when we explain a phenomenon by its purpose rather than the mere existence of the phenomenon in the first place. When we talk about teleology applied to humans, it means our individual existence is defined by the intention of our actions. So how do our intentions make us social beings? But girl, you must have known that bringing up intentionality would spark a debate. It sounds pretty lame that already from the beginning we we start with teleology. Like the social immediately has a purpose. It's not like being. We are not questioning being by itself as an abstract entity, but just like getting one plus one it already has a purpose. Maria had to give some precisions. It's not like society has a purpose. Teleology really addresses only the individual. The individual have an intention. So there was a confusion about the meaning of teleology. It's not about saying that society has a purpose. That's an entirely different debate. Here we are saying that individuals act with intention. According to Mark, is also what, what distinguishes social, like human social beings from like animals or other beings that exist in the world. It's our capacity of like having intentions and realize them through labor or other um, social activities. For Marx, our intentions or our teleology makes us humans. It's how we pick up a rock and say, I'm pissed. I'm going to throw that rock into that window. No judgment. Pulling a suffragette. You do you. This is what differentiates us from animals. But intentionality isn't the only thing that makes us special. Let's listen to Marie explain how teleology, labor, and social structures are entangled within social ontology. Remember, listener, this episode is about ontology after all. Ontological priority is given to material reproduction of the species through labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no human activity is possible without human beings. So as a being materially, right? And so human beings provided with material conditions, assuring their activity. We reproduce our society through our labor. So ontology as understood by Marx, the existence of society, our reality, our very being, entirely depends on our labor. The dimension of it is the value also because... Um, because you have the teleology and the structure, and it's always in dialectics, there's always uh, the possibility of choice and alternative in the realization or objectification of uh, your teleology. 
Um, and you'll do that by judging uh, as value, like certain things for the general reproduction of the form of being. And here Marie-Ève is talking about our agency. We are individuals with intentions, and we can change the conditions of the social structure around us. So there's an ontological difference between the human practice as individuals and the social structures that condition this practice. So the social structures will restrain but also enable human activities. And those like those uh, social structures are the conditions that are inherited from past um, societies but also uh, from nature. So it's not like we create completely these conditions but we inherit them. And they can be either reproduced, as I said, or transformed. So as individuals, we are connected to our social ontology because we produced it through our labor. So the existence of society is social ontology, and it both restrains and enables human activity. Society gives you the condition for what you can do, but also what you can't. And social structure is rooted in its own history. As Mariev explains... Based on all of these kind of ideas, I think the bottom line of a Marxist ontology is based on social relations, so the relations between individuals, but also between the individuals and the social structures. And also like the historicity, of course, creates like a contingency for the social structures at a certain point in, in time and how it restrains and enables changes or reproduction. Okay, so how do social relations and history work together within this conception of social ontology? The knowledge we have of nature of, or all of these things, like they're not out there. We construct these knowledges also, and these are historical. They will change through times, and so we objectify at certain moments a certain knowledge of like what is, and that in turn... Uh, will also uh, influence how we act in the world, right? The, human the way we understand the world is based on knowledge we gain through society, and Marxists don't like to take this knowledge for granted. For example, uh, you know, thinking that social structures are what they are because of laws or stuff like that, it's not the case. In a Marxist perspective, you kind of analyze these uh, social structures in terms of historicity and in terms of how we inherited them. And then you try to learn and know the causality that, that leads you to these social structures so that you can act. From a Marxist perspective, societies are the way they are because of history. The laws we have are rooted in history. They change over time because of our actions in society. This is how history and social ontology are related. That to me speaks a bit more about a Marxist perspective on ontology, but also what is ontology or what's the role of ontology in a Marxist perspective, I think. Like it's kind of another level to talk about, meaning like what kind of knowledge we have. The ontology, I think, can change. It's also, his, you know, it's also part of historicity, right? So our actions in the world, we can either like reproduce that ontology that we inherit from our society or we can change it also. Does that make sense? Well, it's starting to. Okay, so remember how I explained in my intro that I would try to illustrate ontology using a sensory experiment in game design? Well, here it is. Last season, Best Concordia, Johnny B, spoke with PG student Ida Maritov. She's part of the Technoculture Art and Game Research Group here at Concordia. 
Hida has been working on a project on gaming and a sense of touch. Lucky for John, she brought the game devices she designed to the interview, and John got to try them out. Ida's experiment came from wanting to explore vibrations, you know, like the one your phone makes when you get a text. When we started out, we were looking at, like, what can existing technologies do to us? Like, there is vibration in a lot of phones. Like, can we use Android phones? Um, can we use the iPhones? But, like, the... The vibration that was part of those existing technologies was not not very interesting. It was not mm-hmm. very kind of expressive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, together with Ian Hatwick from uh, Ed Mill at uh, McGill University, mm-hmm. um, they developed these devices that are called uh, VibroPixels, which is these modular devices. Um, you can have one. In- yeah, go pick one up. So these are the device. Oh, I get to pick one up. Okay, oh, it's rubbery. <laughs> right, so these are um, devices that are, they have two vibrating motors in them and a mm-hmm. battery, like you can see, and um, mm-hmm. also an LED and an antenna. Okay. And then it's kind of wrapped in this silicone uh, see-through thing. So they have two two motors, did you say? Yeah, so they have a very strong motor and a, and a much more, like, subtle, um, uh, yeah, uh, like a smaller motor. Okay. So they have very, like, can make very interesting and kind of um, advanced kind of expressions within mm-hmm. the the vibration uh, modality, if that's a modality. Um, so, so and, and we can have, so they are controlled from my computer or from our computer via um, Max MSP, which is a software that is usually used within media art productions, like usually from live performances, uh, like sound, music, or... Like an editing program? No, it's like for live for live performances. Okay. So um, like it would go through the software... So people are kind of... It's like an mix. instrument kind of. So oh, you're okay. like lix, mixing live. Um, and yeah, so you can have a lot of these, like Chris makes very large scale projects where yeah. he has like hundreds, I think, of these. Oh, wow. I just have uh, 20 of them for now. And I'm trying to make games with these uh, devices. So. Okay. And they're meant to be handheld, is that the idea? Uh, they can be, you can see the kind of straps on some of them. Yep. Um, so, oh, yeah. so you can put go... them like around on the body and you can mm. hold them in your hand and. Um, yeah, you can also put them on things and have them... They also light up, so they can uh, also hang from ceilings, and they can also make things vibrate, and uh, they're very yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. You may be wondering how these mysterious vibrating devices relate to the topic of ontology. I promise we're going to get back to ontology soon. It will all make sense in a bit. But for now, just know that games engage people by making them care about specific things through a system of punishment and rewards. For example, some games use points and you try to get the highest score. In her work, Ida is interested in how to make people care about vibration in a game. I started really working with the vibrations and making vibration patterns that are very, you know, like interesting and make people care about these objects. Mm. So I've been making some prototypes about... Um, where I I just have three instructions um, that kind of 
are interesting enough to spend over 20 minutes or 15 minutes time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that becomes um, the latest prototype I have at least is kind of a, a exchange, like a trading. So you're like trading these objects and then a, a storytelling game kind of comes out of that. Uh, to go on with the design process, Ida needs our participants to engage with her game. She also asks them to translate their experience into words. This can sometimes be a challenge for them because they lack the vocabulary to define what they feel. When coming up with a game, you need rules. The problem with vibrations is that they are very difficult to translate into meaningful instructions. You have to combine sensation with words to give them meaning. I'm really interested in the fact that that this... um that vibration or the sense of touch is very unload, like not so loaded mm. with words or with like that kind of meanings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm interested in what kind of meanings are people making? What kind of stories are people making out of these different vibration patterns? Mm. Which is why, you know, I ended up with a storytelling game because then I'm learning about what kind of stories people are making by holding this vibration thing in their hand. As Ida explains, perceptions involve physical sensation and thought. Both are required to make sense of the world created by our experiment and to extract and communicate information about it. Ida's not only interested in people's interaction with these devices, but also in the meaning they give to them. I've run this uh, prototype, I think, three times. Um, and, I mean, I'm I'm totally, like, thrown away by what's happening. So, um, so in diff- I have told the people, so I need a kind of um, way to get people feel comfortable and safe to begin with. So I have said something like, these are, um, these are hot, heartbeats or these are birds Mm -hmm. like um so when you because when people pick these up when i was like uh, making the latest vibrations people start picking them up as if they were small baby birds Mm. and then as if like when you felt the vibration it was like a heartbeat Uh. so then i kind of went on with that and i said like okay in this room that you're gonna come in there is um birds sitting around in the room then you go and you pick one up and then um, you know, I made I made kind of instructions about how to pick it up and uh, how to make people feel comfortable and. Take but her instruction did receive some resistance, or her participant were confronted with a new ontology. The vibrating devices alone were just objects, but Ida guided them towards a new ontology a new understanding of being and existence by transforming their perception of vibrations. People need an ontological structure to be able to make sense of knowledge, in this case, sensory perceptions. So Ida put some extra effort into creating a playing space where people interacted with our devices. People could take their time to find some balance. Let's see what happened then. Had these three instructions that I wanted people to kind of go through, yeah. or like you know, it's like a, a duration thing. What were the instructions? So the first one was to pick to pick up um, 
I don't remember exactly the, the, the wording right now, but like pick one up, like choose one that you like. And then there is like a trading phase where people start like giving them away, but mm. on a condition, like I would give you my bird if you promise to um, <laughs> give it on to someone else or, you know. <laughs> and then people start make giving, uh, giving them names and kind of developing personalities because they all have different vibrations. Mm. So they all kind of have different personalities. And mm. some of them feels like... Um, they're like, this one is almost dying, you know, and this one has to go to the hospital. So pe- so right. the conditions people make are like, you know, I'll give you my heart if you promise to take take it to the hospital yeah. or if you Aww. promise to, like, not kill it. And then some actually, <laughs> sometimes they have died because the battery ran out what? or something and people are, like, heartbroken. Oh, <laughs> like, <no. laughs> but the first time I did it, um, I was really shocked because um, they... Uh, came into the room and they all picked one up and then I was giving around the next instruction on a piece of paper and people just sat there. I couldn't get anyone to move Hmm. for 15 minutes and I was, you know, I was like, why don't people like, you know, follow my instructions (laughs) that I'm giving them and there was just nothing I could do. So after 15 minutes I was like, okay, this is over. It's a fail. I mean, it's super beautiful um, people were just like sitting on the floor, like hanging out, you mm-hmm. know, lying on top of one another, just like feeling this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and one person actually followed the instruction because he felt like he should. So he did a trade, mm-hmm. and afterwards he talked. He talked about how much he like regretted it, he and he was his missing his device. original one. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, it's so crazy. It's like instant emotional bond with your vibrating mechanical device. That's so hilarious. Wow. Yeah, so. But people make the stories while they're playing. While they're playing. Or I call it stories. Like they develop kind of, um, the only thing I tell them is to give it a name. Yeah. Um, But then because they're trading, so while trading that, I didn't intentionally, uh, I didn't make a storytelling game on purpose, but that's what I'm seeing is happening because mm-hmm. um, people develop all these personalities, so it becomes like a community of birds and and people start to know all the birds in the space. Mm-hmm. So usually they're about 15 or 9, 9 to 15, and, um, and people would be like, oh, that's Billy, yeah, yeah, I know Billy. <laughs> yeah. um, How is Billy doing? Or, really? You know, so, so it's like... So people wow. are really curious to get to know all the birds and yeah. how all the birds are doing, and they remember all the... I'm wondering if you see what I see in this experiment. A structure, intentionality, people trading. Is it me or is it possible to draw parallels here with Marie-Ève's explanation of a Marxist social ontology? In the game, people traded. They created this little society and invited these vibrating devices into the heart of it. The devices became the center of the game because people imagined them as living creatures to care for. Their sense of ontology was transformed for the duration of the game. But another thing happened while playing this game. People also created categories. This is where the critical race perspectives comes in. After all, 
Healthy birds, sick birds, dying birds, and white, black, East Asians are all categories that help us understand the world or the game around us. Well, let's now turn to another member of the Thinking in Spacetime group, Fintan Nealon, who addresses questions of ontology through the important notion of category. It's concerned with what is called the category of blackness, which in some sense is beyond, so to speak, the ontologies of science and history. Those ontologies in which there's a constitution of a voided universe with subjects and objects. And our aim at the text is to produce, quote, to produce a reading of the onto-epistemological grounds of the categories of the category of blackness, singular, and to gain a knowing without modern categories. She sees blackness as this, which she, she constantly refers to it as a creative potential, which is not, so to speak, empirical, but rather is that which can't really be reduced to modern science. So there's a kind of a violence, obviously, going on against blackness, and that this, it's in, intimately bound up with capitalism. Blackness itself is produced by the categories of modern science, Western history, and capitalism. This text is saying that the category of blackness is not just an impartial category. It was created in a society that oppresses and is violent towards members of this category. Let's now hear what Maria had to say about categories and the influence they have on our way of understanding existence. I understand it as like, okay, so she's talking about categories and those categories are ontology, right? They're like how yeah. we understand the world. We have these categories, and blackness is one of them. Mariev goes on to relate this to sociology, where we use categories all the time. Think of quantitative studies and the surveys where you need to fill in your gender, your race, and a bunch of other things. So I guess you know how we sociologically, but also like, I don't know, we, we build these categories of race and that's how like we, we understand being, right? Mm -hmm. And then like, so, so reconstitution of the world itself is also like through these categories by having other categories and by deconstructing those that we have now and like reconstructing other categories, then you're uh, reconstructing whatever the world because that's how we understand it. We only understand it through categories. That's my understanding of what but she's saying. It is something so important and so ingrained within our culture, you know, within our Western capitalist culture, you know. It's just like, how do you understand the world without Newton? You know, it's just like, yeah, as a what is that? You know, it's how do you understand, uh, like, the whole world right now without the exploitation of the African? It's just... It, it kind of it breaks everything apart, you know. Mm. It's just like, how do you do that? And yeah, I think there is a kind of incommensurability between the two kind of worlds in one sense that we have this like, the, the category of blackness as I understood it doesn't fit into the categories, yeah. into our normal set of categories. Um, and she has this line in it where like, that it's almost our current set of categories um, is almost disposed towards trying to destroy it and seeing it as a threat, but then it can never be destroyed because it itself is just potential. But that's the difficulty because you, like, as, you know, when you're going to try to specify what you're saying and everything, you're going to use the vocabulary and the categories that we have. And this is the center of the problem. We understand our world 
through categories. But we never question how these categories were constructed or how violent they can be. Remember how in Ida's experiment, people had to resort to things they already knew to explain the vibrations they were sensing. How the objects they were handling became little birds and how some vibrations were imagined to be heartbeats. Remember how some birds were thought of as more fragile or sick just because of the impression they gave through their vibrations. Remember how Ida recalled people had difficulty finding the words to express all of this? They resorted to categories. They sorted these devices into categories to make sense of them. They created an ontology out of vibrations because that was the only way they could think of to make sense of this game. But what is the difference between Marxist and critical race takes on ontology? Well, Jada had this to say. My understanding, critical race is just trying, uh, perspective is trying to kind of deconstruct the, the, the already given like Western kind of ontologies, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Marxist kind of like dialectics between the human and the structure or like the agency and the structure labor and everything. To sum it up, there are ontologies and then there are categories created within them. And these categories are very powerful because they can release or repress potential depending on the category you belong to. This process has been violent towards black people, towards women, towards indigenous people, and there lies the power of decolonization in questioning existing categories. This reconfigures how we think of them and releases repressed potential of marginalized people. The potential that is blackness, or that was constituted as blackness, was expropriated to constitute capitalism. That capitalism in its, you know, blood and bones is itself the expropriation of, uh, and the violence done onto the various peoples and groups on the African continent. And the ethical, of course, fails to register how the total value expropriated from the African, and Jesus is kind of singular, is in the very structures of global capitalism. This then kind of leads her to kind of give then a ontological reading of decolonization, or what decolonization means in an ontological sense, which she says is this kind of the return of the expropriated value that was undergone in the last four centuries through not like a monetary re recompense um, or recuperation, but a, she said a reconstitution of the world itself. So decolonization here is understood as a reconstruction of ontology. It is about reconstructing categories. She also says that whilst what's also involved in this kind of ontological decolonization is an affirmation of endless, unchanging play, which she claims is contrary to the world's subordination to time. So she really wants to open up this kind of other world, like a total transformation of the categories that we operate uh, and understand the world, because they themselves were, were kind of bound up in this kind of an epoch, if you will, and can't think outside of that. It is not sufficient to transform categories. We need to recategorize everything. This is because 
previous categories were constructed in an oppressive system. So it would be impossible to escape it or to achieve decolonization with these old inherited categories. So many things to think about. Well, I hope it's all a little bit clearer now. I wonder what Ida thinks about my little attempt to use her work to explain ontology. I will leave you with the closing comments of the discussion group, which are not without a point of irony. Final thoughts? You know, we don't know how the brain works because we don't have enough data, but one day we will have all the data and we will know everything. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) I can't even. I would say ontology, like, my understanding is that as a society, let's say, like, we have a certain ontology in terms of, like, common kind of understanding of what is our society, what is nature, how we... And that can change through, yeah, because it's also linked to historicity. So, like, the way we conceive nature, we conceive society, and we conceive all of these things is different today than it was, like, a hundred years ago. Yeah, because there's two ways to take ontology, like, either the science of what is, or the or not like logos in science, or like, uh, you know, what we can say about that. Mm. Yeah. And that's where all the problems begin. <laughs> <laughs> when we had that conversation, like, one of the last semester, we had, like, the ontological term, um, talk, and there was, like, all of that, like, oh, yeah, but it's getting away from the politics of epistemological questions. But now I'm like, no, wait a minute, like ontology has a powerful kind of political implication. Uh, And and I think you can see see it in the Marxist approach and also the critical race approach of like the the power of our categories, yeah. Mm -hmm. Of our ontological thinking, like how do we understand the world and that's how how we can like act on it. This week's episode was written and produced by me, Anne-Marie Turcotte. Additional production by John Bryans, Pauline Obanks, and Chris Millett. Music provided by Perf Club. Special thanks to the Concordia Ethnography Lab and the Miller Institute. So this is it for us. If you have any comments, or even if you would like to produce your own episode, please visit our website, bestconcordiapodcast.com. We would love to hear from you.